All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. almost transitional vibe from midwest to plains western kind of feel to it and i've always enjoyed driving through there because i used to live in colorado so I, I, I did my master's in colorado um and so we you know we drove from kentucky to see family a couple times and i just like that drive it's nothing beats driving across that wide open space mm-hmm. That's a but long. I'll disagree. Kansas is terrible. <laughs> Drive, <laughs> driving across like Kansas it. is a long drive. <laughs> Man, it never ends. It is. Yeah, it's a long haul. You I get excited it. to see grain silos. Like, oh my God, there's something different. Yeah. Oh man. See, I, I kind of like it because there's no traffic. You know. Yeah. Soon, especially as soon as you get outside of Kansas City, you're done. You you shed the traffic yep. and you can just cruise. So I really don't mind it, but that's just me. Maybe I'm weird. You're weird. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I drove across Kansas was from uh, east to west, and I had an altimeter in my truck for some reason. I don't know what vehicle it was, but I was watching just like the slow tick up from basically sea level at the mm-hmm. uh, Mississippi River up to uh, Denver's altitude. It was pretty wild. I was like, this Kansas is really just one big hill. Yeah, I looked it up one time. Uh, out of curiosity, and I think Kansas City was at like 500 feet above sea level, something like that. And then Canarado, which is the town that's on the border of Colorado and Kansas, or Colorado and Kansas, is about like 4,500 feet or 4,200 feet. So wow, that's a significant elevation yeah. gain, but it's flatter than a pancake. It's yeah, the, you, it's the ultimate optical illusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's really telling is as you get close to that border. You know, you you start to see like the peaks, like you kind of start to see the fourteen thousand foot peaks kind of peeking over the horizon, but you can't see the the mountains mm. uh, until you actually get a little bit into Colorado, and you actually it's you know there's a downhill segment that goes down to Denver, so like Denver's actually a little bit lower than a spot about a hundred miles to the uh, east of it. So it's like that you get crest over that point. I mean, you know, you've driven it, yeah. but it's just pretty wild <laughs> that it's it's all flat, but it's a very, there's a very noticeable hill uh, mm. before you even get to Denver, which is pretty wild. Otherwise, yeah. you'd see it from three, four hundred miles away. Yeah, wild times. But no, enough with a geography lesson. We're we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 sitting here with uh, retired general. That's of the four star variety, uh, Robert Abrams, who has been gracious gracious enough to join us while he's trying to enjoy his retirement. And uh, so, can we can we call you Rob, or what? What would you prefer? If if you want me to answer you, that that is not <laughs> one of the options. Okay. So, you can, so, yeah, it's funny about that. So, uh, you know, who calls me Robert? Yeah, no one. Um, sure, sure. Some people, some people like to call me Bob. 
Yeah, I'm not okay. Bob either. So if you want me to answer, I'm not Bob. <laughs> the only time I'm Bob is um, when I go to uh, like a coffee shop and they want to put a name on the coffee. I I give them Bob. I use a pseudonym sure. and uh, it works fine. Uh, so my go by name is Abe, like Lincoln, Abe? which is okay. why. I, yep. So you can understand why I don't try to do that at Starbucks because then they go, hey, what is what is that? So it's just it's just easier to tell people, yeah, I'm Bob. And then, they, sure, and then they there's go, no argument. They really want to make, yeah. So if it's Bob and then they go, Bob, what? And I go, no, just Bob. Just oh, Bob. Ju- just yeah. Bob. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, but I, I go so by three, Abe. Yeah. Uh, well, now, we'll, we'll go with three monikers. Yeah, Abe, we'll go with Abe. Abrams or Sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah Abe, Abe, those, General Abrams. Those are, all, those are all good. You call me General Abe. A lot of people do. Um, you know, it's fine. Whatever you want to call me is uh, is good. But I, I want to thank both of you for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan. I follow it. And um, I'm, I look forward to the opportunity. That's, that's, that's pretty high praise. I remember... Uh, when we first, we actually set up a Twitter kind of like last minute. We're like, ah, oh, we don't really do anything on Twitter. I was like, you know what? We'll throw it up there. And then uh, it wasn't too long after that you posted a picture of yourself up on top of Spurwingar. I was like, oh, we gotta get, we gotta, we gotta add uh, General Abrams. And then you added this back. I was, it was the greatest, you know, achievement of our Twitter campaign. So it justified <laughs> the entire existence of the account. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was a cool moment uh, because uh, you know you have a pretty. Interesting history of Sperman Gar, which we'll get into a little bit later. But typically, the way we kind of kick these things off, as you know, is give us, well, generally we asked for a brief uh, introduction of people's military career, but your military career is a little bit more illustrious than most. So, um, you know, if you don't, I mean, your family history is steeped in it. So there's one aspect of it that we kind of, it'd be kind of cool to speak to. But we'll just kind of give you the floor and kind of give us, give us a spiel on why the military, sure. how you ended up your trajectory, et cetera. Yep. Sure. Well, um, you know, as, as you guys know, I'm the son of a soldier. I'm the youngest of six kids. Um, both of my older brothers were soldiers. All three of my sisters married soldiers. My wife is the daughter of a soldier and her brother. She's got one brother who's also uh, retired soldier. Um, and how many you know, of your siblings was, are generals? Yeah. So, uh, my oldest brother retired as a, uh, brigadier general, my middle brother retired as a four star. And unfortunately he, um, he passed away way too early in life. Um, he passed away in, uh, 2018 in August of 2018. And, um, you know, he was almost 72 years old and, um, tragic died of brain cancer. So a form of brain cancer. And, um, I'm very sorry to hear that. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's our, our father was, um, you know, uh, was the former chief of staff of the army. He was the 26th chief of staff in the army from 1972 to 1974. He's the only chief to have died on active duty. Um, uh, he's the first armor officer to serve as the chief of staff of the army. You can imagine that. Oh, wow. 
Hmm. And, um, you know, his, his, his military history speaks for itself and, you know, claim to fame started really in World War II and, and, um, came up through the ranks. But I was born in, um, uh, because I am an army brat, uh, youngest of six, I was born in Germany when my dad, my father was a division commander when I was born, which, hmm. you know, so, I tell people well, that today great. and they're like, they can't imagine, but he was, it was a lot younger time period, right? He, he was a lot yeah. younger. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a 45 year old division commander wow. and, uh, mm. which is still, oh which is still pretty, which is still, you know, kind of old to have kids, but. Uh, but I was born in 97th General Hospital, Army General Hospital in Frankfurt, Germany, and, um, you know, grew up mostly overseas. Um, you know, people say, what, what does that mean? I, I live when my dad was in, my dad was in Vietnam five straight years. Hmm. That's a, that's a long deployment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so that we would have a chance to see him occasionally if you got a chance for R and R. Uh, our family, my mom and my, the two nearest sisters to me in age, who were both in uh, middle school or junior high and high school, um, we lived in Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand. So I lived in hmm. Thailand for five years and went to an international school um, wow. while my dad was in Vietnam. So I, and I share that with people because it is, um, you know, everybody's a product of how they were raised and, um, I, I had a unique childhood, but it wasn't unique because I, I was in this all, you know, military family and my, my father was, you know, a flag officer and a four-star general. Um, it was because of my life experience, principally living overseas. And, um, and hmm. that, that certainly had a hand in shaping who I am. My father passed away when I was a freshman in high school and um, I went to a all boys Catholic high school there in Northern Virginia. Um, I honestly did not know what I was going to do with myself. So I like to tell this story and I'll be brief about it. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, um, but between my sophomore and junior year, I, I indic my, my mom and I were going to go on a trip to visit my two brothers who were stationed in Germany at the time, young majors. Hmm. And, uh, I, I mentioned to my middle brother, um, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll join the army. Maybe I'll go in the army. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll apply to go to West Point. And, um, my, my middle brother, um, he, he kind of thought of me as a young, soft, you know, punk kind of, uh, he didn't have a, cause we had a huge age spread, 14 years difference in age. Mm -hmm. And, um, so anyway, we went to Germany and, um, you know, he said, are you sure you're thinking about it? And I said, yeah, I am thinking about it. He says, well, I'll tell you what. And he was the S3 of a tank battalion. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to hook you up with a tank platoon leader and a tank platoon. And you're going to go to work for two weeks and you're going to do whatever they tell you to do. <laughs> you're going to be lower than a private. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> So they, I reported to this second lieutenant, Bill Hewitt, and um, I went to work every day and put on coveralls and they were getting ready for a big IG inspection. And they worked me like a dog from, you know, sunup to sundown. And at mm -hmm. the end of it, I knew two things. Um, the first thing I knew is 
I really like being in the Army. And it, they about killed me. But I love the teamwork. I love the camaraderie. I love the uh, shit talking. Um, you know, uh, I got to play uh, basketball on the weekends with these guys. And I was a basketball player in high school. Um, it was just a great, it was, it was really up my alley. I knew that. The second thing I knew is um, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to get on a path where I can be in charge because <laughs> I knew then as a rising high school junior, we were doing some stupid stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I couldn't say anything. So, okay, yeah. I, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to be in a position where I can influence the outcome so that we stop doing stupid stuff. And that's what set me on the path to apply to West Point. And uh, I got accepted and I, I graduated. And, and um, you know, I won't go into all the details of my bio, but, um, you know, I'm an, I'm an armored cavalryman. I've served in both cavalry assignments and armor assignments. And um, I'm, I have, uh, I'm fortunate for many, many things. One, I was never on a bad team. I I never was on a I was on I was on great teams everywhere. I was on um you know choose your superlative. I was on World Series champions. I was on a couple of Super Bowl champions. I was you know choose your you know I was uh soccer gold cup teams. I I was on a couple of those in my career. And um and I was just lucky. I served with some awesome people. And I was on awesome teams. Number two, um, I never, I had one bad experience with a boss. One. Wow. And if you want to talk about that, I, I don't think you do, but uh, I had one bad experience <laughs> when, I was a, when I was a battalion commander. I had two different brigade commanders <laughs> when I was a battalion commander. And the second guy I worked for, um, it was not good. Um, and, um, well, um, you know, I think that, you know, we may get into something about that, you know, about, you know, what, what do I think is most important, right. About, you know, serving as a leader. And for me, uh, the most important trait is one's character and their integrity and leaders, you, you, it's easy to do the right thing. It's easy to stand up and be counted for and speak up. Uh, when things are going well. Oh yeah. Right. But it, it's, mm -hmm. it's not so easy when, when bad things are happening and, and you have to own it and, um, and you have to, what we call speak truth to power. And when, when people are not doing right by their soldiers and their families, in my view, you have a responsibility. You have a sacred responsibility actually to, speak up on their behalf. And um, more than once in my career, that got me in a little hot water. And it certainly did with that particular brigade commander. But as I like to, and I, and I share this story in a lot of leader development uh, programs that I speak at. And, um, you know, and in the, you know, they ask, you know, how did you deal with it? So I tell them and I go, look, um, you know, I retired as a four-star general, or, I'm, or I was then a four-star general, and he retired as a colonel. 
So I, I think it worked out okay. Right. So now what unit was that in when you were a battalion commander? I was a battalion commander of the first cavalry division. Okay. Okay. And then the third thing um, I like to tell people about, you know, why, you know, I've served over 39 years. Um, my very first platoon sergeant in the army was um, about day uh, 60 or so of my time as a platoon leader. I went to the troop commander and said, he needs to be relieved or you need to fire me. Hmm. Hmm. Um, my first platoon, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but um, when when officers are in their pre-commissioning source, whether it's ROTC or West Point or even at OCS, um, the smart ones every night are saying a prayer to whoever they pray to. God, for a good platoon, sergeant. please, please give me a great platoon sergeant. I'll do anything for a great platoon sergeant. I've heard so much about the the value of a good platoon sergeant, and I was one of those guys. And um, so when I showed up at my first assignment, you know, I sat down with my platoon sergeant, and you know, I I followed the guidance I'd been given. I did mostly listening about expectations of what he expected from his lieutenant and what he was going to do as the platoon sergeant. And, and it was all good. And at the end I said, Hey, um, Sergeant first class, so-and-so I said, um, I'm with you on all that. And I said, and I'm, I consider myself an, an apprentice. I got a lot to learn, but l- let me, let me tell you one thing that's not negotiable. Integrity is not negotiable. I go, as long as you and I are 100% honest with each other, hundred percent, we're good. You, 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 you break that. We, I said, I, I do know enough to say that's unacceptable. So in the first 60 days, he didn't lie to me once. He didn't lie to me twice. He actually lied to me on three separate occasions and I caught him on it and I counseled him on it and I documented it. And after the first one, I went to the troop commander and the first sergeant and told him what was going on. And they, Troop commander and the first sergeant gave me some guidance on what to do. And the first sergeant was an unbelievable, great, grisly old non-commissioned officer by Harold name Harold J. Jones. And um, and so, you know, he called in the platoon sergeant and chewed his butt. And uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, he lied to me third time. And I just went to the troop commander and said, I can't operate this way. So and this is an important story because needless to say, my trust and confidence in America's non-commissioned officer corps was now in the toilet. Mm-hmm. And uh, my troop commander and my first sergeant, um, so I was in a cavalry troop, an old-fashioned H-series cavalry troop, um, you know, 39 combat systems. And um, there was 14 staff sergeants in that troop, 14. No, no wow. E-7 available. So I had 14 staff sergeants and um, they chose the wow. most junior staff sergeant in the troop. This was a staff sergeant with nine months time in grade, Edwin <laughs> J. Tibbs. And he got selected to be my platoon sergeant. He, he was the tank section sergeant in third platoon of B troop. And I was in second platoon. And um, so Sergeant Tibbs came over and, um, what a great guy. And 
And I, you know, we got to do an in brief. And he said, Hey, Lieutenant Abrams, we're, I'm going to make this easy for you. I'm going to, we're going to do whatever you say. I got your back a hundred percent. Um, you don't have to worry about a thing. We've all been watching you. We think you're pretty good. You got done wrong by Sergeant Williams. I'll never do that to you. And, um, we're good. Do you have, what, what questions do you have, Lieutenant? He was ready to get to work. And uh, from that day forward, from that day forward, for the rest of my 38 plus years in the army, my sergeant, I, I, they were unbelievable. Every, you know, section sergeant, you know, when I was an XO, uh, headquarters platoon sergeant, um, I was a battalion S1, my, or a squadron S1, my, my pack supervisor, um, you know, my battalion maintenance sergeant, my, and then first sergeants, uh, ops sergeants major. I have been blessed the rest of my career. My sergeant was incredible, was awesome. And I got to serve with some of the very, very best. And, um, you know, I'm just very, very thankful. So those three things I just tell you kind of shape who I am and what I'm about sure. and, and how I describe my career. So that would, it's, you would have taken, you know, those experiences, you know, we know that you ended up at third ID, which I think is extra fitting because by then, you know, our main battle tank is named after, after your father and, uh, you know, third ID had developed you know, a reputation as being, you know, kind of the tip of the armored spear for the United States army. Um, and that's, I don't think that that's unfair to say that. Um, so what, what was your, what was your command immediately prior to coming to third ID? Oh, I was the commander of the national training center for Irwin. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, that's a, that's a shift. Um, yeah. There, well, there's no, uh, here's something that I think your, your listeners, um, for general officers, there, there is no cookie cutter, you know, you got to right. do this to do that, to right. do this, to do that, to end up to be whatever position you are. It's, it's not how it works. Um, you know, once you're selected to be a brigadier, you serve literally at the leisure of the chief of staff of the army and the secretary. And they put you, um, first priority is needs of the army. And, and I, I'll give you a, uh, an example to illustrate that. Um, I was not supposed to be the commanding general of the National Training Center. Um, I was a one star here at Fort Leavenworth and um, I was already slated and had been told I was going to be a deputy commanding general in the 1st Infantry Division at Fort Riley, which is not very far from here. And um, uh, every quarter, uh, the Army four stars get together and and uh, they talk through general officer assignments. And uh, so this was at a December 2000. Um, God, when was it? Uh, 2008 uh, was a four-star conference and, um, you know, everything changed. So the summer of 2009, I was supposed to go to Fort Riley. And, um, you know, after the four-star conference, the they called down to the, my three-star boss and called me and he said, hey, remember I was told you're going to Fort Riley? Yeah, you're, you're not going to Fort Riley. Okay, sir, where are we going? Um, you're going to Fort Irwin. And... Um, <laughs> Go, could, could you go tell your wife? And uh, if there's any showstoppers, I need to know. 
So uh, I called the next day and, and uh, I said, no, we're good. Um, that, and I had a son, my son was going to be a rising, he was a high school freshman. And so I was going to move him, hmm. you know, I'm sorry, in eighth grade. And, and um, so he was going to finish his eighth grade year and then he'd be a freshman um, at Silver Lake High School down at Yermo. If you guys can remember that, that's where the high school is for soldiers signed to Fort Irwin. So um, hmm. anyway, and then and then he goes. The other news is uh, this was December. He said, "I said, when do I need to be there?" And he said, "Yeah, you need to be there in February." So um, you know, I um, and I had to go to a six week general officer course in between there. So I went to the course, came back from that. You know, um, uh, my son stayed in school. Um, my wife and I got on an airplane. I flew to, uh, Fort Irwin and, um, took command. Um, no, I'm sorry. I drove out. She flew in for the change of command. Um, mm-hmm. and then she came, she went back to Fort Leavenworth to be with my son to finish out his, his eighth grade year. And, um, and I was a geo bachelor for about 110 days or so until she and my son drove out. Um, so I wasn't, uh, I was supposed to be in three ID or one ID anyway. Um, so that's where I was. And I was there, um, you know, until the division headquarters, as you know, had just, uh, gotten back from its fourth back to back to back deployment. In fact, the entire right. division had done four back to back since to the invasion 2003. So, um, and I had never served in the three ID and that's a whole other story. I wasn't originally slated to go to three ID, but it worked out that way. And, and I was honored to be able to go there and serve. And, um, so, um, you know, that's how that ended up. And when did you arrive at third ID? Yeah. So that's a whole nother story, right? So, um, yeah, they it's again geo assignments, but I I actually got there in March, so I left Fort Irwin in March. Had to pull my son out again, mid semester, mm-hmm. and uh, we moved to Fort Stewart. But um, the 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 commander at the time, Major General Kukolo, Tony Kukolo, uh, there was a delay in his follow on assignment. So instead of taking command right away. Um, yeah, I remember I, this. I was I was a special assistant, and um, and what I did was is I dropped off my family, and five days later I drove to Washington, and I was on the transition team uh, to assist General Dempsey, who was then the TRADOC commander. He became the chief of staff of the Army, and uh, I helped General Dempsey um, uh, as part of his transition team to get him ready to become the chief. And uh, when that was done, then I went back down to Fort Stewart and took command in May of 2011. Okay. Imagine our surprise when uh... we drove through the front gate of Fort Stewart, five-day drive from Fort Irwin, (laughs) California. Man, yeah, that's the opposite side of the coin in so many ways. Yeah. Oh, man. I was at the uh, change of command ceremony. I was out there in the field. So I, I remember the timeline yeah. kind of, you know, uh, sticks out to me. Well, being hot. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, it was hot. Hope, hopefully you remember that my remarks were at about 95 seconds. 
Yeah, I do. I definitely remember that. I gave, I quick, gave pretty short. I, I gave pretty short remarks. Yeah, I know because we were uh, we were all kind of we had been working on it for two weeks before you know before the the ceremony even happened. So well, because yeah, you had been there at five forty five for the squad formation for the six forty five company formation for the seven forty five battalion formation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do remember your remarks uh, being quick, and we were like, "Oh, that's it. We're we're done. We're marching out of here. Great." Let's go. <laughs> now, when you took over in May, uh, was there already any indication of the upcoming Afghanistan rotations, or was that was the? I mean, nothing. I know that at the nothing. Okay, we still focused on Iraq the, at that the, point. The only thing that was on the books was the three ID headquarters. Um, about two weeks after I took command, was officially notified to go to Iraq. And mm, okay, um, right. because at the end of the, by the end of 2011, November of December of 2011, we were going to downsize to a two-star headquarters. So go from a four-star commander um, to a two-star and go from about, you know, 60,000 troops down to about six to 8,000. And mm. 3ID was the next division you know, on the patch chart. So they put us on a deployment timeline to go to Iraq. And um, yeah, I think I did my first pre-deployment site survey, you know, to Iraq. Um, wow, it was pretty, I want to say maybe the first week of June. It was quick. I mean, I got on an airplane and went over there. Uh, I ended up doing three different pre-deployment site surveys to Iraq. Um, cause we were certain that we were going to go, we were just awaiting right. the final decision from the president. And, um, as everybody knows in November, uh, the president decided yeah, like, we're leaving. It was fast too. He like, he announced it like as the last, you know, official v combat vehicles were like on their way out the country. Like, cause I was in basic training when he announced that and we're like, what do you mean we're out? And he's like, yep. Yeah, Boom, we're done calling it. So like, you, okay. yeah, so you know, at the brigade uh, signal company and in a division signal company, we have our JNN, you know, those big nodes with the satellite dishes. Yep. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, so and our um, our JNNs were already down at the port. Um, they were already at uh, the airfield. Um, you know, block braced, ready to go. And um, getting ready to get on an airplane when when the call came to don't send them. So we were wow. Yeah, I mean, I was out when they called. We were uh, the division headquarters. We were uh, my Advon was the Advon was already there, and um, we were two weeks I think from the main body getting on the airplane. Wow. Hmm. And when they canceled that, was did you immediately get the follow on that Third ID Command would no. be into Afghanistan later in 2012, or was it just no. like, hey, just cease operations? So cease work, and then um, you know, so now we've got a division headquarters that's fully manned. You know, went through all the train up. I went through a, right. the mission rehearsal exercises, and you know, command post exercises, and and so when when you have a any unit that's at that level of readiness, they're like, okay, well, we got to use them somewhere. So then right. they're like, okay, yeah. when 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 can we get them into Afghanistan? 
And um, the earliest, the, the need for a U.S. division headquarters was going to be August of 2012. So I got that call. Um, I got the call to knock off going to Iraq in the middle of November. By the first week in December, I was told, okay, you're going to Afghanistan and you got to be there in August. Okay. Okay, so not mm. too not too long of a turnaround then. Yeah, we we yeah. started we started prep the next week. Mm. Mm. And this was just the division headquarters at that time, right? You didn't know any of your any of your other brigades or battalions were going. Oh, a week after, no, yeah, no, maybe three <laughs> days after we were told is sure. when they laid out. Hey, we think you're going to send a brigade to mm. a Ruzgan to be combined task force a Ruzgan. And uh, so we got that warning order. I didn't know what that, I didn't even know what CTU, you know, combined team Ruzgan was. Um, And then um, the next day, I think, is when we got told, hey, one of your battalions needs to go in February and to augment a striker brigade that's on the ground in RC South. Kind of walk us through the the process of like hearing of getting that requirement down and then deciding, you know, ultimately who who's going to end up being that battalion. Yeah. yeah. So it, it went sort of like this. We finished Thanksgiving, the division headquarters gets told it's getting, you know, it's going to go to Afghanistan. Then we're told a brigade's going to go to RC South to Aruzgan. We don't know what the exact shape's going to be. It's going to do some advise and assist. Um, and so the brigade, the next brigade in, inside the division's queue uh, was 2nd Brigade. And um, because 3rd Brigade was already deployed to Iraq and was transitioning back down to Kuwait. I don't know if you guys remember that. Mm-mm. I don't. Yeah, I do vaguely now because I remember when I when I got to Fort Stewart, it was it was a little empty. Like, yeah, one of our brigades is gone. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, my in my case, I got I was in basic training up until early February, and I, I so I didn't go to NTC or anything like that. So yeah. I fell in on all this so, a good bit after it happened. So Third Brigade, the Sledgehammer Brigade, yeah, they um they were they were downrange, and um, so they got sent back. Um, but anyway, so back to the Spartan Brigade. So the next brigade up for us uh, with the longest well was 2nd Brigade. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was 2nd Brigade. And um, so then it was, um, so that was easy. We got that done. And then we got the call, hey, one of the battalions needs to go, and it's not going to go in the summer. It needs to go like in February, end of February. And um, it was two battalions, so, you know, right? Us uh one one thirtieth for the and one thirty. Uh, yeah. So that was yeah. the that was the, the follow on, right? So two battalions. And um so we um you know, I sat down with the brigade commander and um, you know, kind of went through the strengths and weaknesses of each unit. Um, you know, what, what battalion commander was the, and the battalion command leadership was the best fit for each mission. And, uh, ultimately that's how 164 got identified to go to RC South to augment 3-2 striker. And, um, 
um, and and then you know and then had to accelerate. So that's why we were you know we spent all of December of 2011, um, you know, drivers training, getting MATVs to Fort Stewart, people you know driving, trying to get basic skills in a in an MRAP, and um, and then you know we had to work with National Training Center. We want to get some sort of training experience for the battalion. And that's how you ended up going out to Fort Irwin in January for a one-of-a-kind designer boutique 10-day rotation, you know, really focused on, you know, platoon, squad, um, mm -hmm. and some company operations, live fire, a lot of live fire, um, you know. And then, you know, you guys came back and, um, you know, we had to everybody jump through hoops to get your stuff loaded up. And uh, we ended up taking because because uh, the turn was so short. Your stuff didn't go on a ship; um, they airlifted your stuff. Wow! Yeah, and you drew yeah, your I didn't realize at the time once you got unique. there. Yeah, I didn't realize that was unique at the time until my second deployment when we had to, we were staging that stuff months ahead of time. Months. You know, putting yeah. our helicopters <laughs> on a boat and waiting on the boat to make it there. I was like, man, it seems like it was a lot faster last time. That's that's exactly why. So, but it was really, you know, how did one six four, you know, get down to RC South? It, it, it boiled down to a conversation about um, strengths and weaknesses. Every unit's got a different um, sort of uh, personality, if you will. Climb. They were both good mm -hmm. units, uh, but who was, you know, who was sort of better suited uh, for the mission at hand, and um, and that's how one six four ended up going down to RC South and and the Battle Boars, um, you know, ended up one thirty infantry ended up uh, going up to um, to be part of the SODIF uh, or to be the Special Operations Task Force in RC North, and. Right. Uh, you know, the rest is the rest is kind of history. But that's how 164 ended up going to Kandahar. Did you have any kind of idea what the fight they were going that you were signing us up for? Or did were you get any kind of information about what was going on in the country previously? So, or in that yeah, I mean, we, we had. Yeah, I mean, we had some. But in all honesty, we this the the requirement to augment three two striker. That was the you know, we're. You know, my question was, I, you know, why, why would a striker brigade that has, you know, a gazillion dismounts, why would they need hmm. another battalion? And, um, and because, as you know, um, you know, a uh, 164 armor at that time, you know, two tank companies and a mech company was not very, uh, you didn't have a lot, we didn't have a lot of infantry. So what mm -hmm. what exactly was the expectations? And um, so, you know, that's what kind of was driving things. Uh, but we didn't we actually did not know what what your what your profile was going to be. Um, mm -hmm. Once we identified the unit, by the time your NTC rotation came around, we had an idea what they were going to use you for. Um, I've tried to check my memory banks. I. I actually don't remember that one of the companies was going to get sent out to Spare One Guard. I think that was a decision that was made, you know, tactically inside RC South as you guys were getting into country, 
to go in there and rip out with. Uh, do you remember who did you rip out with? Uh, would have been, I think it was Bravo Company One uh, Five Infantry was on the ground when we took over. Uh, out of One Two Five out here, out of Alaska. Oh, they were getting ready to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just, um, you know, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why, you know, why, why it required why three two striker. They're the same size striker brigade as one two five. I don't know what. So I think the difference was one two five had two battalions in Panjway. They had uh, they had uh, three two one infantry and one five, and they uh, basically had the strength of two battalions because they ha- they had Cop um, Mushan Talakan, Zangabad, Spurwangar, Kenjakak, and Soja. So they had five bases, basically five company size cops. And uh, okay. one, two, three didn't have enough companies. Uh, that that was that was okay. my understanding. They they needed the they need more battle space owners. Okay. Well, that was that that was all pretty fluid um, at that point as a division commander. Uh, I was we were focused on making sure you guys had the right kit. You know that we sure. had as much of the um, you know the Afghan CIF stuff to be able to give you, um, and and we got the unit through um, you know a good training experience at. Um, at the National Training Center to give you the, you know, the confidence in yourselves, your equipment, your teammates, and your leadership um, that you could get over there with enough skills to be able to get in, get ripped in. And then, you know, you guys are going to have to learn as you went, which is what you did. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, I will say that the training cycle leading up was, uh, was pretty intense. Uh, of course we inherited Brian kitchen who started, uh, pushing us hard on physical fitness and things like that, uh, which is, which paid off obviously. Um, but I do remember that NTC rotation specifically being some of the, probably some of the best training I got in the army, honestly, because it was a infantry training instead of Bradley training. (laughs) Right. Uh, so that, you know, so that panned out well for us and that was, we were able to be infantrymen, uh, first instead of Bradley gunners first and then infantrymen second. So. You know, it was it was a good it was a good rotation. It was a lot there was a lot going on, but it paid off for us because it prepped the ground. You know, tilled the ground for sure. And and for yeah, what I it's can't... worth, the uh, the the training that I got to do, which was not NTC, because when I showed up to the when I showed up the third ID, they were already at NTC. Um, they basically handpicked us up out of reception and said, "If you're not married, you're going to one six four and you're going to Afghanistan." So we did an abbreviated train up. <laughs> <laughs> they, it was exactly the way it was. They said, raise your hand if you're married. And all the married people, cool, you're going to 4th Brigade. Everybody else standing here, unless you got a real good reason not to go, you're going to Afghanistan in three weeks. Um, and they sent us through like a abbreviated train-up, you know, individual team squad, live fire, some you know, terrible ID lanes. <laughs> um, the most, every, every box that they needed to check to send us out the door, um, we did it in probably, I think, a two-week span. And then... I remember I reported to one six four three working days uh, before we got on the birds. So yeah, even that was you know I I know that that had to be a division level effort as well because it was very like we had every range that we needed. We didn't have to ask. The ammo was all there. Knowing what I know now about how far in advance ranges and stuff are prepped and planned for, I knew that that had to be a big push. So it worked. It got us where we needed to go. I I gotta tell you, so um, you guys just. Mentioned it. So what the other great thing about your rotation is um, 
2nd Brigade uh, had another unit, and I think it was, I think it was 3-7 CAV, went mm-hmm. out there and they drew all your equipment and then everything you had, and then they turned it in. You guys, so Luke, you know, you were talking about, hey, it was a great rotation. Yeah, because you guys only, all you had to do was show up and train. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, didn't have yeah. to, you didn't have to go through all the pain of drawing yeah. all that equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was other units in your brigade that did that for you. And uh, cool. they, I mean, they were, it was, um, you know, at my level, you know, I, the teamwork inside the brigade um, to help mm-hmm. get you guys out the door, it, it was, it was really outstanding. And um, they, in my view, um, they did a great job because, you know, later 3-7 Cav ended up deploying to RC North. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was nobody to help push them out the door, right? They were, they were having to do that on their own because uh, both they and 1st Brigade were deploying about the same time. So it was unlike, you know, you guys didn't ask me this, but, you know, what's different aside it's a different country. When three IDs previous rotations to Iraq, you know, the the whole brigade went together, right? They went right. on the same. Yeah. They got the same manning at the same time. They got equipped at the same time. They got modernized at the same time. They, you know, the the whole brigade was together, and then they deployed together, went to Iraq, fought together, turned around, came back together, right? And the division was generally the brigades were, you know, plus or minus five or six months within the same window. The big difference mm-hmm. with Afghanistan, aside from the country, is every brigade, uh, I shouldn't say every, yeah, uh, second brigade, then first brigade and fourth brigade, um, they all deployed, but they did it in piecemeal and they didn't have everybody under their flag in their area. Right. Even 4th Brigade didn't. Hmm. When, when 4th Brigade deployed in 2013, um, you know, one of their battalions, uh, 369, Speed and Power, ended up going um, as a, um, oh, I'm sorry, 1st uh, Brigade's 369, ended up doing uh, a squad uplift for oh, uh, yep. another soda. Mm-hmm. So that one out of Fourth Brigade. Fourth Brigade did get to deploy as an entity. That is true. They went to uh, Ghazni together. Uh, okay. But First and Second Brigade, you know, they get they ended up deploying over time, and uh, it really challenged unit leadership. But we had a great bunch of commanders and sergeants major, and people pitched in and so forth. Yeah, it's 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 pretty wild, especially you know, like you said, for years it had been so strict so strictly uh regimented and then they're like we just need bodies in afghanistan and just you know throw yeah. them out there um yep. so we left in march uh and i know that you guys didn't show up as a uh, as a command unit until august what what were you hearing in in that time about what was going on at Spurwangar or panjway oh, my units that were deployed well first off it was really hard for us to get details right and um and i'm sure that your battalion commander uh, lieutenant colonel armstrong was um, you know, feeding that information to your brigade commander. But, you know, as you can imagine, um, I, as the division commander, I, some of it gets filtered. So I wasn't fully privy. 
Um, do you guys remember when you had your first casualty? Because that's what really got our attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, organic. Well, so it, it was all happened in a pretty short period of time. We had a dog handler that was killed on May uh, 30th. And then not 10 days later was, uh, was Corporal Luxmore. That's right. So when Luxmore was killed in action, um, that, that, that got everybody's attention. And we started, then we're like really getting into, hey, you're not going to filter anymore. What is going on? And that's when I started mm-hmm. learning about uh, where Bravo Company was and what was the importance of Sperwan Gar and starting to study imagery and maps. And, um, you know, we were pretty far along at that point. Um, and I think I came over on a pre-deployment site survey, uh, my second one to Afghanistan, shortly after Corporal Luxmore was killed. And um, so I got to, you know, fly over um, Panjway. Uh, I did go to Massamgar. Obviously, I didn't make it down to Sparrow Gar, but I did make it to Massamgar. And I could see for myself uh, from there what the terrain was like. But um, by that point, you know, we knew that, um, you know, there was still, despite all this, the success that had occurred in, in RC South up to that point, you know, with back to back to back brigade sized units deploying into Ponjway and Zari and out to Maywan and up in the Argandab, um, that there was still a lot more fighting to go on. And, um, you know, so that was, it was, a, it was pretty much a wake up call for the division. And, uh, mm. and of course, as you know, at Fort Stewart, like most division installations, they have some sort of memorial for those killed in action. And, um, when we did the, and so, you know, we have warriors walk at Fort Stewart with all those beautiful trees. And, um, that was my first, uh, tree planting. That's what oh, really? struck me for me. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That yeah. was, uh, that was, that was the start of a rough stretch. Um, you know, kind of starting with the dog handler, but you know, we had Luxmore on June 10th. Uh, and then we had lost two engineers on the 12th and the 14th. Uh, I think on the 16th, we had, a, well, I think, our first amputee that was organic. Um, that, that's interesting to hear because uh, Corporal Luxmore's passing was definitely kind of the the start of a fighting season in its, in its entirety. And that's... Yeah. 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 Hey, uh, when we talked the other day, you didn't bring it up, but before we leave this podcast, we must talk about your first sergeant. And his, he and I have a long, long history that I don't think you know about. Let's hear oh, it. really? <laughs> yeah, lay it to us. Imagine my surprise. Um, before you guys deployed, in fact, before you were even alerted, um, I was out doing some battlefield circulation. And uh, with first Sar- or with Command Sergeant Major Watson, Division Sergeant Major, and um, and I was down there in your brigade footprint, walking around, and and um, and I, I I remember meeting Captain Kitching, and and um, but but first Sergeant Cullum, I think he was over in the Cav Squadron. He got moved to your company, mm-hmm. and uh, and I met uh, I met him when he was in the Cav Squadron and when he was in three seven. And I remember going into his company and there he was. And I, I was stunned. And here's why. So in 19, March 1990, 
Captain Abrams took command of HHC 18CAV, 1st Battalion, 8th Cavalry Regiment, 1st Cavalry Division. I'm sorry, May of 1990. And um, in August of 90, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, you know, invades Kuwait. And, um, and that started the deployment for Operation Desert Shield and then Operation Desert Storm. PFC Cullum. Oh, God. PFC Cullum. <laughs> was a 19 kilo tanker in 1-8 cav. And when we got alerted, we had to do a, a big jump through our hoops in 1-8 cav. Uh, we started getting a bunch of augmentees, in other words, to fill out our unit. And uh, we needed a bunch of truck drivers. And young hmm. PFC Cullum got assigned to the support platoon in HHC 1-8 cav. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, shortly thereafter, Cullum gets promoted. Only once we're deployed to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and Captain Abrams busted Cullum. That's too good. That is at an article 15. <laughs> <laughs> What'd he do? What'd he do? I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> and um, something. Anyway, but I, but I, but I, you know, I filed it locally, and you know, wasn't going to be part of his permanent record or anything. So um, he got to be a PFC twice, and um, <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't. You know. And after that, you know, God bless him. He 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 woke. He was very immature. Is what the problem was. He was very immature. And, um, you know, ran his mouth. It was probably disrespect to an NCO because he had an old cranky staff sergeant was his platoon sergeant. And um, mm -hmm. but anyway, uh, he he bucked up from then on and and towed the line and soldiered hard and did a great job. And uh, he was a go getter. And shortly after we got back, you know, he earned his he earned his stripe back. And, uh, and then I didn't see hiding or hair of calm until I ran into him as a first sergeant <laughs> so when when colonel cardinelli told me that um column was getting moved over uh i can't remember what happened to your previous first sergeant but um bravo company needed a, a a first sergeant and column volunteered and he jumped through his you know he'd change out and go over there immediately i said make it so so you you, you were all kinds of invested in the bayonets at Sporengar at that point then i was pretty invested I was pretty invested. So, and of course, you know, my aide at the time, Captain yep. Tom Carroll, was the previous company commander of Bravo 164. Mm -hmm. yep. So, yeah, I had multiple connections in the, in the Bravo company. So, as, as you're getting ready to, to come out for, for your deployment to take over as the commander of RC South, um, you know, obviously, you're you're already hearing stuff because you have an organic unit in the area, and the, the information's passing up, and you're looking into it. But you're also starting to get kind of strategic level information from your predecessor. What were you learning about RC South, Kandahar, Panjway, um, that was kind of shaping how you were going to approach, you know, commanding that entire area? 
Yeah, that's that's great. So I, I mentioned, you know, back now, December of 2011, you know, I've been told right before Thanksgiving, you're not going to Iraq. And then immediately after Thanksgiving, I was told, hey, get ready to go to Afghanistan. Um, so the commander of RC South uh, from 2010 to 11 was 10th Mountain Division, Major General James Terry. And uh, one of his deputy commanding generals, and they did a fabulous job by all accounts. Um, one of their deputy commanding generals and some of their staff was going to Washington second week of December or so um, to do a, a sort of a, a debriefing with some think tanks and media and some other people. And uh, it was, you know, when I, the 10th Mountain um, DCG happened to be a West Point classmate of mine, Brigadier General Dahl, Kenny Dahl. And um, he said, hey, why don't you guys come up here and we'll do a, a mind meld with you. We'll do a data dump. It'd be good for you to sit in and then we'll be able to introduce you to all the sort of the key, key people. So we did. Right. So I packed up and four or five of us and we went up to Washington and and uh, spent a couple of days, um, you know, probably three days. But we didn't just do that. Right. We went and spent time um, at uh, uh, Fort Meade with um, Cyber Command and uh, the National Security Agency. We went out to Langley. We went out and met people working on uh, Afghanistan from the CIA. Um, and then, you know, we spent some time there in Washington, D.C. with a couple of think tanks and spent some time with the Joint Staff in the Afghanistan-Pakistan mm. coordination cell. So we used it as a sort of our initial uh, contact and deep dive into Afghanistan. And um, so and then from that, right, we, we got on the timeline for another. We had to go through another uh, mission rehearsal exercise. This time we did it in conjunction with Fifth Corps which was going to come over and be the next IJC um, and commanded by now Lieutenant General Terry, who just had left 10th Mountain. And now he's going right. back as a three star to be the IJC commander. And, what does IJC uh, stand for? Uh, ISAF Joint Command. OK. So remember, you guys were all under ISAF, International Security right. Assistance Force Afghanistan. And IJC was the three-star operational headquarters. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. So, um, and, you know, look, the, the strategic directory, this was always about two things. And and this was the direction that had been started, you know, a couple of years beforehand. And and first was we, we had to secure the population, right? That, that was the center of gravity, was secure the population uh, which means we had to get the Taliban pushed out and away from the population so they're not threatened, you know, being, you know, uh, coerced, uh, bribed, uh, you know, or subject to um, coercion and um, killing, um, et cetera, um, to, to create a safe environment for the people so that the locally elected government officials and designated government officials could install their own version of what Afghanistan's next government was going to look like. Uh, but first and foremost, secure the population. Then second was train, advise, assist, help Afghan National Army and the Afghan police to be able to secure themselves, their people, and their and um, establish the rule of law inside the country. Those were the really the marching orders. 
So we spent the next six months, you know, doing all this deep dive, you know, educating, talking to people, brought in experts, um, you know, um, had a bunch of conferences and so forth to learn as much as we can. Everybody, we had a, you know, a designated reading list. So we're reading our butts off to sort of make the mental switch from Iraq to Afghanistan. Uh, but really, that's where our two focus areas were. And from all that, um, the big idea out of this was we, we had seen continuity uh, from the previous Regional Command South 9 to, to um, 10 uh, before 10th Mountain. 10th Mountain carried it to the next level from 10 to 11. The 82nd Headquarters was there now from 11 to 12, making good progress. So there was a campaign of continuity going through. And my guidance to the division staff was, hey, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. They're making upward progress. The trajectory's good on both primary lines of effort. Our job is to sustain it and make it, you know, see where we can accelerate those two lines of effort. So that was our mental state of mind as 3ID headquarters came in to assume Regional Command South in August of 2012. Hmm. Now, when we uh, when we spoke to uh, Colonel Rutherford, um, we went out to West Point and chatted with him. He talked a lot about some of the power brokers in the area, and we were really surprised to learn that a lot of them aren't even in Afghanistan. They're they're in the Emirates or they're um, in Qatar. Uh, did you have any kind of communication and relationships with with kind of the landowners and you know the out of country power brokers? Not not the not the out of country guys. Um, you know, uh, our my focus. Uh, was with the power brokers inside Afghanistan um, who could help us on those lines of effort. And, and oh, by the way, the power brokers are not always the guys in uniform, nor are they right. the guys that have governor in their title, whether that's district yeah, it's governor. Of, it's just a lot of random rich guys. Provincial governor. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, right? So, um, you know, Karzai's brother, one of Karzai's, uh, Hamid Karzai, president of Afghanistan's brothers, lived in Kandahar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd go over and see him, you know, every month or so, have dinner at his house. Um, but he wasn't the only one. There was plenty of, right. um, you know, of these um, key influencers uh, throughout um, Kandahar. Uh, unfortunately, um, a bunch of influencers were in Pakistan. And of course, you know, we were hands off, couldn't do anything there. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, when you took command of RC South in, in August, uh, you know, you were pretty quick to come down to Spearman Garden and see what was going on because, you know, that was, you know, realistically, that was the, pretty much the only unit in third ID who was seeing regular contact with the enemy. Like what was it about Spurman Guard that kind of made you want to run down there real fast and see what's going on with us? <laughs> well, I think, yeah, well, I think, uh, well, so it was a couple of things. First off, um, to, to your point, right. Um, um, you were, you were the only third tree division unit, um, deployed to Afghanistan. I mean, your battalion headquarters and your other companies were back at CAF, but you know, you guys were in the middle of, um, you know, it depends on where you're stationed, right? The guys up in, um, you know, in RC East all claim that was the most lethal, dangerous place in the world. And, and they, you know, and that, that was a bad area. Um, yeah, but I yeah. put Panjway, I put Panjway up with anybody's bad area. I mean, it's just a bad place. And uh, you didn't have mountains. 
Um, but you had something worse, in my opinion. That's called grape rows and grape fields. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, and and depending upon the time of the year, you know, you had 15 foot marijuana stalks, or you know, you're surrounded by poppies, right? So mm-hmm. you know, it's. Um, I, I remember the first time I I was in a striker, um, you know, and you know we were out somewhere and. And, um, you know, I was, it's not the first time I'd seen marijuana, but the first time I'd seen marijuana plants 15 feet tall that looked like bamboo. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like a miniature so, jungle. Yeah. So it was, um, so yeah. So I think it was partially that. Um, the second thing is, uh, I know you find this hard to believe because um, I'm a general and I was a division commander then. Um, you know, I was a company commander. I was a company commander mm. twice for 33 months back to back to include Oof. Desert Shield and Desert Storm when I commanded headquarters company. And back then the HHC was, you know, 325 Muldoons. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I remember vividly what life was like in a company. And um, I was, I was not really happy to have a 3ID company attached to a striker battalion at a JBLM in combat. That was, and all I could think about was, you know, that, because it puts the company leadership in a really difficult position, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it it's not, his boss is at CAF, his real, his 3ID boss, but his, his tactical boss, the guy he's getting orders from, to put people in harm's way is, you know, at Zangabat. And I didn't know uh, mm-hmm. then Lieutenant Colonel Rutherford from Adam, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I got to know him, but I didn't know him. Right. Um, and, you know, when you don't know somebody, you know, trust is earned in my book. Sure. Right. Trust is not given. Trust is earned. And um, so it was a little personal for me thinking that, you know, I got a, a mechanized infantry company worth of, infantrymen, you know, stuck out in the middle of Tangeway, pardon my expression, but in the middle of Shitheadville, under the command of some guy from JBLM. And uh, I wanted to go see, I didn't want to hear, you know, everybody wants to say, oh, sir, morale's great. Oh, you know, the guys are doing great. Yeah, they're, you know, we get out and check on them. And, you know, because nobody wants to tell me the bad stuff. So I learned long ago uh, the best way to find out what's going on in your unit is to go see for yourself. Um, I, you know, I knew that as a company commander. I knew it as a, a field grade officer. I knew it as a, a battalion commander, brigade commander. I just go see for myself. Um, and then I'd go back and debrief the unit leadership about what I found, whether it was, you know, uh, authentic or not. And, you know, most times, you know, after they, they knew my deal, they, 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 you know, my subordinate commanders, they knew I, I'm not going down there to sharpshoot them. I just need to go see for myself because I ask different mm-hmm. questions. And I'm going to find out different things that maybe they can't find out because I got a different perspective. So that's all of that got me in the helicopter that day to fly into Spare One Guard. Now, were you surprised by the how nice the living conditions were at Sparwingar? No, I've been warned. really. 
Uh, no, I've been warned. <laughs> I've been warned. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, they, uh, as you know, um, you know, I, and I visited every piece of tactical infrastructure in RC South. Um, I, I hit every place at least twice. Some guys got repeat visits. I mean, every, every tiny, if there was a section, uh, you know, if we had what we call tactical infrastructure, right? We had a, you know, a unit there and they were and they and that's where they were i went and saw it and uh, to include wow. the the village stability platforms that the green beret were doing because you had one right mm-hmm. down the road in bellamby remember yep. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh yeah i visited bellamby for like three times um for for <laughs> other for other reasons yeah um, they, they needed some supervision <laughs> they did right and um mm. so uh so i got to see a lot of shitty living conditions and um so it didn't it didn't um you know it was bad don't get me wrong it was bad um but unfortunately it wasn't uh we had other places as bad unfortunately oh uh, but you guys (laughs) what's that we call it the Spurlingar was the you know the deluxe apartment in the sky compared to most people's living conditions really we loved it as far as living conditions were concerned I, I I wasn't happy about it. Now I was happy, um, you know, that you had overhead cover, right? That's that's oh, what yeah, mattered that to me. The big one, <laughs> and um, you know, and you had some high ground when you needed it, and and that's always yeah. important. Uh, but you know, with that though, you guys were a big target. That's the that's the, but that people need to understand that. Um, mm. You know, you can't understand that change in elevation at Sparrow Gar, that mound, you can't understand it until you're there. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. True. That's a good point. It totally changes the way the, the landscape interacts with it, essentially, right? It dominates. Yeah. It dominates the yeah. entire valley down through there. So, but one thing you did find out when you when you uh, flew in the first time was what we didn't have. <laughs> and there's an anecdote that's gotten batted around a lot on this podcast because it seems to be a unifying one across every guest. Okay. Uh, but everybody remembers the milk story. So we, we got to get on record your version of the milk story. Yep. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's be clear. So that was actually the second visit. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is the right. second visit. My memory's shoddy. Yep. Yeah. The, the the first the first visit was just hey I'm I'm in I'm in Pangeway. Um I I had been over at Zangabad and I wanted to come see you guys for myself. Um, mm. The second visit, um, you had a young sergeant whose name escapes me who was killed in action, uh, just like two kilometers outside the gate on Route Brown. What was his yeah, name? Sar- uh, mm-hmm. Sergeant Jason Swindle. That's right. So um, I went. I came in for the memorial ceremony, mm. and um, so Sergeant Major Watson and I flew in, and um, um, you know we attended the memorial ceremony. Um, you guys, um, obviously, um, there was a lot of strong feelings about um, that sergeant. And uh, it hit people pretty hard, and and um, you know there was people having challenges dealing with it, like usually happens when a mm-hmm. valued member, you know, somebody who's that a lot of people are close to is killed. 
and uh, it's kind of fresh. And, um, you know, for an old dog like me, um, you know, this ain't the first time I've seen this, right? Um, sure. You know, I, 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 I've seen enough of it and I've been to way too many memorial ceremonies. So I know the look when things aren't good, right? Um, so I told your company commander, I said, hey, I, I want to, you know, get, get all these yahoos out of here. You know, there was some, I mean, there. Are, I, I appreciate people who want to show up and pay their respects. I, I actually do. I There was uh, uh, an A&A lieutenant colonel or a colonel who came and, you know, some other people. And um, and I think the battalion command, uh, the one, two, three commander was there. Rutherford might have been there. Maybe even the brigade commander. Um, and I said, hey, I am going to talk, me and the sergeant major are going to talk to this company by ourselves and I don't want anybody around. So um, um, that that's the setting for, for this whole conversation. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it was an opportunity for me and Sergeant Major Watson to, you know, tell you our share our condolences. And and, um, you know, for those who were experiencing how hard it was, was to, you know, let them let everybody know that it's OK to grieve. And and if you're upset and, um, you know, if you're, you know, not feeling right. You're not 100%. Your head's out of the game. Um, you know, if you feel like you got to, you know, cry your eyeballs out. Um, these are all natural, natural things that happen. And um, and then we just wanted to listen, you know, kind of what's on your mind. And, um, you know, so there were some guys that spoke up. And um, so anyway, but there wasn't a lot of people want to talk to the division commander and the sergeant major. But I could tell people were really, they were hurting. Your company was hurting bad. I mean, it was, it was not good. And um, so then I said, okay, well, look, while I'm here, I said, is there anything I can do for you? You guys need anything? Which is, I asked that every single place I went. You know, hey, you guys need something? Is there anything I can do for you? And 99% of the time, Nobody ever takes me up on the offer. So I, I try it. I try like try to pry it out of people. You know, please, no one will get in trouble. I'll keep your fingerprints off it. You know, whisper in my ear. You know, will you write it on a piece of paper and put it in a box? Um, what can I do? Do you have everything? And everybody feels such loyalty to their chain of command that nobody ever wants to tell me what they really need. Until that day. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, I know you told me his name. Uh, tall specialist. Phillips. Big Phillips. guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He puts his hand up. And, and um, you know, just as shy as he could. He said, sir, could, can we get some milk? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was stunned. I was stunned. I go... Uh, because as you know, most of your listeners probably know this. Um, I mean, it's not like we just got in Afghanistan. I mean, we, we have such logistics and, and such access to everything in Afghanistan that nobody was going short of anything, right. Except for maybe fresh vegetables, right. That, that, that's, you know, mm -hmm. lettuce and salad and stuff sure, like that. But, right. um, mm -hmm. you know, we had hot and you know, and I live on calf for crying out loud. 
which, you know, had a, you know, we had restaurants for crying TGI out loud. Fridays. TGI Fridays. <laughs> so I said, you, you, I said, are you guys running short on milk? He goes, hey, sir, we, we haven't had milk for three days. I, I, I was stunned, stunned. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So I'm like, okay, I can fix that. What else, what else don't you have? And then the floodgates started. Well, yep. sir, you know, we don't have this and we can't get that. And, and, um, that's when, you know, 40 might Hey, can, can we get some 40 millimeter, you know, you know, yeah. 203 ammo or, uh, whatever that thing is. Uh, I, you guys had the single shot thing, whatever that thing's the called. The 320. Yeah. The M320, right. Yeah. Old guy like me, M203. But, um, I go, you, you, you guys can't get 40 million. Uh, sir, they say it's, you know, controlled and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. How much do you need? I, somebody told me, oh, okay. What else? Yeah. All of it. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I got a little wish list and, um, and I, and I said, okay, I got it. I had, um, Major Savitt with me, Jason Savitt, my XO. We, we both wrote it all down. And um, and I said, it'll be out here before the sun goes down today. And uh, and it was. Um, and you got, well, yeah. Now, you guys, um, you know, I, I'm going to put it back on you. So how many people in Bravo 164 honestly thought that that stuff was going to show up before the sun went down? <laughs> Zero. Yeah, yeah, it was a genuine chance. surprise, uh, and you, you definitely earned some some street cred down there in the in the in the, on the Sparrowingar Hill when a helicopter, your helicopter, came back loaded down with milk and forty Mike Mike. We were like, okay, all right, this is legit. That's a good move. So yeah. we were yeah, yeah. we were happy. We were happy to yeah. Like, like well, not yeah, not only that, uh, but I think the next log pack that showed up from the support platoon yes. out of one, two, three was <laughs> loaded down. With everything. Loaded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The next log pack was a chore because yeah. there was so much Cause, stuff. Because yeah. when I got back to CAF, well, we had already, um, my XO had already texted and emailed all the requirements back. Um, before I got on the helicopter, I had called back to the division chief of staff and uh, said, get the G4 online, get this stuff cooking, and uh, start moving it down to the, the, to the, to the flight line so my guys can pick it up. And um, um, so we we heard a so they got that, that the milk came from Zangabad. Is that true, or did the milk come from Calf? Oh hell no! That came, it all came, everything on that helicopter came from Calf. Okay, okay, <laughs> no, because it, it reminds the, it reminds we just saw like your helicopter landing at Zangabad. No, like no, no, no. The division, <laughs> the division G four, the the CJTF three J four, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Greg Peterson personally. Um, with his sergeant major went down and gathered all that, all that stuff up and uh, supervised getting it to the airfield and put it on that helicopter. Um, <laughs> and uh, when I got back and, uh, you know, I walked screaming into the division headquarters, the division chief of staff met me and, you know, before I had to ask her, you know, blah, 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 this is going, this is going, we're drawing this out, we're getting this, we're getting that. And, uh, you know, they'll, they're going to, your helicopter is going to go get gas and then, you know, it'll be back, be ready to go at this hour. I said, okay, I want to know when wheels up. And, uh, and I said, I said, and, and Captain Carroll 
my aide is going with it to make sure. He said, okay, fine. And um, and then I started burning up the phone lines, and I called the 3-2 Striker Brigade commander, and that was a one-way conversation. I was, I was hot. I was hostile. And it only got worse because, you know, his, his response to me was, uh, sir, I'm, I'm sure that the unit, all, you know, I'll bet if I look at their log stat report that, you know, they didn't report this as a shortage. And, you know, I, I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? There's no shortage of anything. Why are we relying on, you know, did the first, I said, do you know what that company's been up to? They've been fighting their ass off. Do you think First Sergeant Collins got time to fill out that goddamn log stat to make sure that you guys, common sense would dictate every three days you ought to bring out a basic load of milk, sodas, Gatorade, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is not that hard. Anyway. <laughs> well, it was I much appreciated it. It was, yeah. uh, on down there at Spurman Garden. Like I said, you earned some street cred with your boys that day, so we, we felt heard, felt yeah. validated for sure. Um, well, you know, that that's the thing, right? When you're, I told you, I, I actually remember being a company commander. And, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I can count on zero fingers the positive experience I ever had with a general in my division when I was a company mm. commander. Hmm. Yeah. Next. So, um you know, that was kind of the, the microscopic level. Let's take a second to kind of expand it back out to the bigger picture as well. Cause now you're, you've assumed command, you've, you've gotten your feet wet by, you know, you're going out and you're visiting places like Spurman Gar and all the cops and everything. So the big picture for RC South, how did kind of Panjway fit into tactical on a tactical level or on a political level or whatever? How did Panjway fit into the big puzzle pieces that were, that you were managing in terms of being yeah. commander of RC South? So, so look, um, simply said, if if the coalition, together with the Afghan National Army and the police, if we could control Panjway, the theory was you could control the rest of Kandahar for a number okay. of reasons. Um, okay. It was, as you know, well, Panjway connected down to Registan Desert and the rat lines coming out of Pakistan for Taliban fighters, for IED material, for money, you know, you name it, back and forth, right? That was their, one of their main supply, MSRs, was coming up through mm-hmm. the reg and into Panjway. Um, secondly, uh, there was a um, historical connection between Taliban leadership and Panjway. Um, now, Everybody knows that um, um, uh, Osama bin Laden came from um, uh, Zari, right? You mean uh, Mullah, no, Mullah, Mullah, Mullah Omar. Omar? Mullah Omar. Yeah. Mullah Omar came from Zari, mm-hmm. and um, which, but which used to be not Panjway. very far. Yeah, but not very far from Panjway, right? Right across the river. Um, and But a lot of his leaders came out of Panjway. Mm-hmm. And the tribal connection, and the, and the name escapes me, but there's two principal tribes in Panjway district. 
Um, they were they were at the beginning with Mullah Omar. And mm-hmm. they all, and that family bloodline all was in Panjway. So the theory of the case was if you could control Panjway, then the rest of Kandahar, it, you you could fall in suit, right? You couldn't say that about Maywan. You couldn't say it about Zari. You couldn't say it about the Argandab. Um, you couldn't say it as you further went north, but you could say it about Panjway. So, um, and that's why we spent a lot of time and energy, put a lot of money, um, you know, CERP money and um, encouragement into the Afghan government, um, that that needs to be the the primary effort and the main effort. Now, of course, that that was a big problem in Afghanistan because you got us, the Americans, trying to tell the Afghans where the main effort is, and they want to put their main effort where they want to based on their tribal right. affiliation or where they're going to get the biggest kickbacks from or where the Taliban are telling them to go. Right. So that was always the mm-hmm. friction, right? At the, at the bigger level. And, uh, but that's why we invested so much in first brigade, uh, the 205th Corps from the ANA and the security apparatus and doing our best to try to find the best, district chief of police and the district governor, uh, all of that um, was tied to, that's why that was the main effort. So, hmm. and that's why, you know, you guys had, you know, you had all the balloons, you got cops, you got all that stuff. Now, the the 205th Corps, they were primarily not from Kandahar. Is that, that's correct? They're mostly from the north? Uh, yes and no. And this was one of the okay. biggest biggest challenges. There were there were some elements of 205th Corps um, who were Kandaharians and okay. and had the tribal connection, uh, but the vast majority came from the north, uh, and we had a lot of Tajiks. Mm-hmm. So that that always caused friction. So, but there was some, not a lot. Yeah. And what what was your thought on that? I mean, because I know because we, we spoke with Rusty Bradley, um, obviously his his opinion is pretty negative of the of the regionally displaced units just because they're not as local as, as invested in, you know, the local success. Do you see it the same way or do you see kind of a more of a balanced approach to it? No, I think I no I, I um, it, it took me a while to pick up on it because what well, here I, I'll give you an example. Um you know, as a as an American, if I would if I would show up in a unit, right? I'd go, show up to visit a unit, and you know the unit leadership's briefing me. Uh, pretty soon, I'm going to get a chance to talk to soldiers. And um, the, the what I say to every soldier is, "Hey, tell me about yourself." And they're, they're like, "Well, what do you mean? Where are you from? You know, what did you do before you came in the army? Why'd you come in the army? You got any family? Um, you know, what do you do for fun? You got any hobbies? Tell me about yourself." And um, but always starts with tell me where you're from, because I'm fascinated in our own army. You guys don't know this, but our army is so diverse. It's unbelievable. We got people from all walks of life. Truly. Mm -hmm. We got city kids who've never had a driver's license. We've got country boys who have been driving since they were 12, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and everybody in between. So. so I would do the same thing with Afghans. Um, hmm. I, I would always, when I'd be with a unit, 
And, you know, I'd be talking with Afghan soldiers. Hey, where are you from? Right. When, as the general, they'd show up. They'd always want me to give out awards. Right. They got certificates right. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't just pass out an award. I'd ask them where they're from. And it was fascinating to see the demographic. So after I'd been there about a month or two and doing this, uh, I finally asked my counterpart, the 205th Corps commander, I go, hey, isn't part of your problem that you don't have enough Pashtuns? You know, you got too many hmm. Pensiris. You got too many Tajiks. You got too many of this. And um, he's like, yeah, it's a real problem. And I go, why aren't you just recruiting Pashtuns? So first off, not a lot of Pashtuns were joining the army. Sure. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and here's why. Because, as you know, the Taliban were principally Pashtuns. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a fine line between what's a, what's a, what's a guy who's just a good Pashtun and who's in the Taliban. And they just, they, as a Pashtun soldier, um, you know, they might be in a firefight with their cousins or, you right. know, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of extended family member. Um, and God forbid they, they actually have to, you know, do a court on and search or something like that. Um, and they just, so they chose not to join the military. And if they did, they asked to be sent somewhere else, not in Kandahar. So they would not have that conflict of interest. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't so consider that, the fact that they would join in disproportionate numbers. Yeah, so if yeah, so you know, so yeah, I would agree with Rusty Bradley, but um, but here's the other thing. It's it's this was again, this is not for us to tell them how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They they gotta come to that conclusion on their own. So um yeah, it was really difficult. Really difficult. Um, anyway, and, and what were your thoughts on the readiness of the, of the ANA in 2012? I mean, I had the privilege of being able to see them 2012 and 2017, and there was quite a difference. Um, but on the ground level, I'll be completely honest as a PFC, we were not impressed at all. And dismissive. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't, you sh uh, it depends. There, there was some that were pretty good. But again, just like in the American Army, it boiled down to their unit leadership. If they had decent mm -hmm. leaders, you'd find a decent unit. The problem was there wasn't that many good leaders. Mm. And um, so it was, um, I think they're at the, you know, the battalion and brigade level. There was a couple of battalion commanders that I could have lived without. Uh, the battalion commander in, um, in Zangabad, he was terrible. And they cycled through mm. a couple of them while I was there. He was, hmm. they were terrible. Hmm. Um, and, you know, arguably that should have been one of their best guys. Right. A and no, he was terrible. So um, where we had good units, uh, good unit leaders, you had, you had some units that could perform. But, hmm. you know, it was, I felt like it was one step forward, two steps back sometimes. And yeah, uh, sure. I think the brigade, the brigade and the core leadership was pretty good. And the staffs, I spent a lot of time with them. But fr my frustration was um, getting them to go on the offense 
was difficult. They were very yeah. happy to sit at checkpoints. They didn't yes. want to do what you guys were doing. No, and they mm-hmm. they definitely did not <laughs> <laughs> at every level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for um, sure. Did you ever get any kind of res- any sense of resistance from you know the Afghan army about operating in Panjway because it was Panjway? Were they like, for example, happy to go do operations in a Ruzgan, but did, but a different mentality towards no. the Argandab no, Valley? It, it, no. Just uh, well, there was uh, okay. I I shouldn't say that. Yes, there there was some of that. Um, hmm. They were really happy to go up and do a clearing operation in Zabel. Oh yeah, that made them all really happy. Um, hmm. And um, and and we did a big op. We went offense up in Shawalikot and on the north end of Argandab. Um, and that you know and that went pretty well because they thought you know we had good intel and they fleshed out the intel and, you know, we we're going to go after some lateral routes, Taliban, you know, trafficking routes, infiltration routes and so forth and some camps. Um, so, yeah, but getting them there, there was a bit of a resistance about going offense in Panjway. Uh, but we had a similar challenge in, in Zari. Sure. Sure. And, um, you know, there's there's like a very powerful shadow government in both of those districts. Do you think that had anything to do with it? Was there? Oh yeah, oh yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, as as we've talked before, right? Nobody, you know, I hate to say it, and it, I, it's just how I felt. Um, you know, I don't I don't think there there was anybody or hardly any Afghan who was a hundred percent pure, right, for the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to do what's right. Uh, I think we had a lot of people who were in the 80 to 90 percentile. But just to survive, there was you know right. some graft going on and, and maybe some stuff that we that certainly wouldn't have been acceptable in our army. But you know for them it was kind of their way of life. Um, so I think there was some of that um, going on. Did you have any interaction with the shadow governors or anything like that? <laughs> Uh, well, the, the shadow governors, um, that you're talking about, the Taliban shadow governors, um, no, uh, but influencers who could directly talk to the shadow governors. Yes. So there's a, Mm -hmm. like a one, like a, uh, a middleman between us and them. Yeah. Like one degree of separation. One degree of separation. And we could talk to them. Um, no, because those guys knew we were hunting them. Yeah. Hmm. And how how were those kind of discussions? Like, you know, did you ever felt like you feel like you were making progress um, in kind of talking those yeah. guys down, or was it kind of like with the ANA, one step forward, two step back? I I think well, it it depended, right? And um, and I'll be honest with you, as sad as it seems, it it almost always boiled down to money. This was, hmm. yeah, it was it was it was about the money. Mm-hmm. And it was about graft and and control, and um, yeah. you know they had plenty. By the way, they were very frustrated with the provincial governor and and um, and and the central government, and yeah. I was frustrated with the central government and the provincial government as well. It was mm. convoluted, not well done, no transparency. Um, right. You know how they spent the money that was coming from the central government. 
you know, I don't know how many billions of dollars we spent in Afghanistan, but you know, it, you talk about trickle down economics. It was very difficult to get that money where it needed to go uh, down at the district mm. level, where it could make a difference. Um, you know, every everybody wanted CERP because they knew the Americans that we were not going to be bribed. We were not going to, you know, do a bunch of payoffs and everything else. And we were going to get it done. So they just wanted us to do it with CERP. And that's not sustainable, right? We need you yeah. to do it with your form of government and you guys. And that, you know, by 2012, that, that we were starting in 12, 13, we were starting to move towards, no, you guys are going to do it. We'll coach you. We'll help you. We've got a provincial reconstruction team that's embedded at the provincial level to help you, but we're not doing it with CERP. And, um, and getting them to do it was really difficult, challenging. I mean, that's one thing that's always stood out to me about the about Afghanistan is the idea of a central government just isn't really compatible with their their history and their way of life, uh, and they're pretty pretty distrustful of it, and you know, with with good reason. Uh, it was <laughs> they weren't exactly the most efficient organization, but um, did you see any kind of signs of success that you know kind of gave you hope that maybe they they could figure it out down the road? I I think that. Um... Um, it was going to take a long time. Um, yeah. And, you know, just every time you get the right people in position, they were starting to make some momentum and so forth. You know, somebody would get assassinated, somebody get killed, mm -hmm. somebody's family would get threatened, and you'd have to start over. And, right. um, mm -hmm. and I knew, um, you know, that the, you know, the, the driver of stability for Kandahar province, as you guys know, was the provincial chief of police, right? General mm -hmm. Razak. Um, and, you know, I, there were some days I wish I could just have made him the provincial governor, right? Um, but, you know, that- You, you that had a lot of people, never, I think. <laughs> that would have never happened. Um, right. But mm -hmm. he, he would have been able to get some stuff done. Um, mm hmm did did you guys know that he was functionally illiterate? No, I had no, no idea. Yeah, so no, we started in two, yeah, so in 2012 we we started um we started we we had a we we started teaching him how to read and write. Wow. <laughs> with one of with with That's one of incredible. our interpreters. Hmm. Uh cuz he I mean he, he was he was fairly bilingual, wasn't he? He spoke okay English. Or did he not speak really. any English at all? No, not really. Okay. Uh, no, he he knew a few words, but he couldn't. Okay, he could not read and write in Pashto. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. He was so uh, influential he was, too. Like he was, he was, and he was so embarrassed by it. Um, but I got to meet mm -hmm. one of his sons uh, at one of our meetings, and um, so, um, but. The uh, his counterpart, he had an advisor, right? The advisor of the PCAP. Um, he's the one that actually broached it with Razik, and Razik agreed. So we did it. That's awesome! Hmm. Wow, that's incredible. But he was a, he was a driver of stability. Not you know we used oh, to yeah. talk about drivers of instability. 
and uh, he was a driver of stability. And I and I know he wasn't, you know, lily white clean, and you know he had some blood on his hands, and you know he's probably had some, you know, some money issues and so forth. But that guy drove security and stability in Kandahar. So our our frustration was really at the provincial level. The the provincial governor was a you know a Canadian Afghan uh, with dual citizenship. Uh, who spoke perfect English, really? by the way. Yeah, he was a college professor. Oh, man. Governor Wiesop. Yeah, and, uh, How long did he you know, last? he was just... Oh, he was there a good long while. I, he was probably the governor for seven years. But he was wow. completely ineffective and terrible. Huh. Yeah, it was... Um, uh, he... He, getting him out of the out of the provincial governor's compound to go visit districts, um, more I you know there was probably four or five times where I had it set up and he would he was a no show. Um, mm. On one time he did show, and uh, and I you know I, I I used every ounce of embarrassment to embarrass him that he had to go, uh, mm. and it was up in Shawalikot, and um, and I don't remember the exact occasion. Uh, but he did not like those guys, and the the the, the district chief of police up there uh, was also a driver of stability, uh, who was very effective. Now he he had a, he had a couple of um, uh, distasteful personal habits. Mm. We got you. and uh, and he couldn't and the governor couldn't get past it. Um, but anyway. There was going to be a, um, you know, a big Shura and, um, you know, we had lined up a bunch of projects and some money and so forth. So we set it up and, um, and I said, Hey, there's no excuse. I'll fly you up there myself. You know, I'll come pick you up at, uh, Camp Nathan Smith. You know, you drive over there and, uh, I'll pick up my helicopter. We'll fly up. I'll be, you know, I'll take care of security. Everything will be great. So he agreed the day before. Um, I get a phone call from his guys saying, hey, the governor's going to bring his daughter. She's in from college in Canada and um, she's going to come along. Okay. So we we land. I land my helicopter and I get out. And I go over to greet and um, the governor and I see this gal coming at me, Afghan woman with skin tight jeans, um, you know, kind of a loose blouse, uh, no head covering, um, you know, makeup to the, you know, to the nth degree, you know, very Western appearance. Yeah. Yeah. So hey, I, 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 away. So I had my interpreter. I said, you grab her. I grabbed the governor by the elbow and I dragged him back to the, uh, you know, we had a little shack there for the, um, to yeah. the control the helipad. And I said, Hey, what what do you think you're doing? I go, we're, we're to going to Shaw Wally Coast. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they're, 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 I, I'm, I will not be privy to an insult to, to the district governor and all the elders that are coming in. He's like, what are you talking about? I go, Hey, your, your daughter is not appropriately attired. So mm-hmm. he's like, what are you talking about? And I, I go, Hey, I, I'm just a guest in your country, but even I know that's not going to cut it. 
So here's what's going to happen. Or, or you're not getting on my helicopter. So um, anyway, um, so he was embarrassed. She was embarrassed. Anyway, we ended up getting, we found a headscarf. We, we, we got it all toned down. We got it covered up. Got on a helicopter and went after her. Um, she still, uh, we get on the ground. And of course, you know, she loosens up her head scarf. And, um, you know, we got in the meeting and uh, the elders were, they were so disrespected. Livid. You could tell mm-hmm. that they weren't going to listen to a word this guy had to say. And I'm like, God, mm-hmm. I hope we, we just make it out of here without somebody getting shot. So that that's, that, that's my immediate thought. Like, why? How are you? Oh my God! How are you? So stupid. And that's, so the, this is the challenge. That. So this oh was the God. provincial governor for all of Kandahar, and mm. and I I displayed more cultural sensitivity than he did. Yeah. So if, if he was so Canadian you, Afghan, he must he must have been implant implanted not implanted but he must have assumed that role while the Canadians held Kandahar. Like I mean is. Although it just that blows my mind that a, a Westerner would be installed as the because he's essentially a Westerner. If, yeah, know, but he was a friend of as, he was a friend of Karzai's. That's how he got to be the provincial governor. Uh, mm. Oof, man! Talk about a misstep. <laughs> PFC anyway. Grace even sees the problem with that one. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's um. So that was our challenge. You know, you asked about the governance, and so no, mm-hmm. I, I don't think. You know, I didn't think we were at ever. We would always need a provincial reconstruction team. We'd always need some em- element of the embassy to be down there to help them to try, try to get this governance on track because it was never, it was not sustainable without us being there. So, hmm. yeah, interesting. So, I mean, that that kind of begs the 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 bigger question is, you know, obviously you weren't very surprised by the rapid collapse of uh, of Kandahar in Afghanistan. Um, is it, did it kind of play out the way that you thought it was going to? Well, I didn't, um, um, you know, once I saw the announcement that we were going to go to zero Americans, zero with no anything, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 I didn't know how long it would be. Uh, but it's, uh, I kept in touch enough. Um, through 2018 um, as the force comp commander, as the force provider, and I had visited there multiple times, um, I knew that they, um, if we were there, they, they could sustain it. But we, the number, what was that number, right? 6,000, 8,000, 10,000, I don't know. But if we all left, yeah, I, I, think, I think we all knew. Anybody who had yeah. spent a decent amount of time there knew that, they just couldn't do it themselves. Um, they just didn't have the wherewithal, the confidence to do it themselves. And the governance, you know, we never got the governance right. And if we, the, the military right. came along, but if you didn't get the governance right, the, the people would never feel secure. And if you don't get the mm-hmm. people secure, I said this earlier in, the, in this session, right? The, the center of gravity was the security of the people. And if you couldn't get the governance right, you, it was never, it wasn't going to be sustainable. So yeah, um, and it's heartbreaking to watch to watch what's happened now. And um, so we'll see. Yeah, it's tough. We uh, 
you know, we, we started this project uh, essentially in fall of 2020, which is when, for all intents and purposes, Panjway fell. Um, they took everything except for the district center in, in, uh, in the fall of 2020. So over the course of the, of the podcast, we, we've heard from people up until you know, fairly recently that were there. They're like, hey, the Taliban are in charge. They're running the show. This is what's happening. And so we, we had the unfortunate uh, insight into knowing that it was already gone you know, well before we left. It was just, you know, they, they just weren't taking district center because that was part of the Doha agreement. And uh, it's real tough um to see to to know that it was what was going to happen um and I, we mentioned in the preview i was i was shocked at how quick Kabul fell but kandahar fell pretty much right right in within what my predictions were which was that they weren't going to survive the summer and yeah. uh it was it's just it's just tough i mean there's there's and you know now the, all those communications that we used to get completely gone so, gone nothing um yeah, they have bad. We know that we know that there were people that we we had to block the, the the Facebook group in Afghanistan because people were being targeted for being like members of our online group. So the Taliban was using the Panjway Podcast Facebook page to look for people. Um, so we had to block that. We had to, and once we did that, we just it's it's kind of the, the 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 tap shut off, unfortunately, and it's just it's difficult. Um, yeah. You know, and well, it, no, nobody, nobody's coming for him. No one's going back to Panjway to save Panjway. Pan, Panjway is the last priority in that country. You know, Ahmad Massoud isn't going to take his forces down to Panjway District Center and liberate that district. It's, you know, it's it's lost. And that's really that's a difficult pill to swallow, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, you know, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I, I get asked. I'm sure you get asked too, right? You know, what, what, well, was it worth it? And, um, you know, that's a really, that's a difficult question. I, I know, um, you know, I, I know that, you know, we weren't always perfect, but we gave the Afghan people the best chance they're ever going to have at a better life for themselves. And, and note that I don't say, you know, I'm not talking about freedom and democracy and all that. I'm just talking about the the best chance for a better life, right? Where mm-hmm. they they can uh, their families can be safe. They can you know get educated, uh, have an opportunity to earn a living and not feel threatened. And that that's that's what was going on when we were there. That's exactly yep. what was going on. And yep. there was so many you know, good things that were going on. And, and now, you know, none of that's going on. And, but the seed is there. And I think that's, that, that's kind of what gets me is, you know, for, for 15, 20 years, an entire generation of, of young Afghans grew up knowing what some of these things can feel like or what they look like. And now that it's been rapidly taken away, you know, that's, I think that's, that's the seed of, of a better Afghanistan in the future. It's, it's going to require a lot of bloodshed, but I think it's, I yeah. think it's there. So I, 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 re, I don't know the exact numbers. I used to be able to recite these statistics off the top of my head, but in, you know, 2001, um, you know, there was somebody that said, you know, there was a thousand cell phones in Afghanistan. And by the time, you know, we got there in 2012, um, you know, there was, Six million cell phones, 
mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you saw it yourself in Panjway. You know, you'd see some old crusty guy barefoot, you know, walking through the grape field, um, you know, in, in native attire, uh, just as grizzled as can be, probably in his, you know, 50s or 60s. Could not read, could not write, but he could operate a cell phone to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, get news, call his friends or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. That is that that is amazing, right? We we have yes. a, a, a you know Afghans. Uh, they know uh, by because they tell stories, right? And the stories are carried from village to village to village by word of mouth. So just bringing in cell towers allowed them to connect that tribal lore and that tribal connection now is much was much faster while we were there yes. sometimes mm-hmm. it wasn't always helpful but you know you know it, it brought them you know in we talked about it in the in the right. pre-session uh people don't understand it there's a lot of part, a good chunk of afghanistan is still in the 17th or 18th century yeah um yes, but definitely. cell phones and access to the internet actually did change a lot and uh, of course we don't know now what's what what's what is available now what's available in kandahar what's available in panjway i don't know but well i it was it was stunning to me because i went back in 2017 as a pilot and you know in 2012 when it was dark there was no light there was nothing you know panjway at you know 10 p.m was just black as black as sin when i went back there is a solar panel in the backyard of every single compound, you know, in Kandahar. Like, you, you just can't miss them. They're everywhere, and everybody has lights now. So flying from Kandahar to Tarankout, you know, you're seeing, like, these compounds lit up in the middle of the mountains. And I don't know what NGO did it, but somebody went, and they just donated, like, billions of dollars in solar panels to these people. You know, and, that, yeah, you're right. They, they all got a cell phone, and now they all have access to the internet. They have smartphones. Uh, it's a radical difference in five years that I saw in terms of the the technology level in Panjway and Kandahar in general. Yeah, we did a bunch of those right as I was leaving in 2013, a bunch of solar panel projects. Oh, right. um, okay. I'm sure got, yeah, I'm sure they did get carried on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was huge. So, um, you know, it's... Um, um, but it's hard, right? You know, we were talking, you know, just not, not just those that were killed in action, but particularly... Down in RC South and in Panjway, um, the the high number of amputees, single and doubles, and a couple of triples, um, yeah. you know those those lives were changed forever, and it's um, you know you can't. So it's difficult, and I do recognize uh, it's difficult um, to to have lost a friend and and so forth or have somebody whose life's been changed forever. And, um, and, mm-hmm. and now the fruits of that sacrifice is, is in Afghanistan. It's back under the control of the Taliban. That's a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. It's hard to watch. It's gut wrenching. It is. Mm-hmm. I, I know one, you know, we, we've spent a good bit of time of kind of tackling this on behalf of the community. Cause we, we recognize the same thing and how difficult that is for guys. And what we kind of landed on was kind of two parts. One was what we already mentioned was that, you know, there, there's a future for Afghanistan if they choose to seize it because now they know what, what that kind of life can be like. But then on the, on the personal level, just for us, 
you know, my service in Panjway has set my has been a overly positive experience for me, despite you know the injuries and the guys that we lost. Uh, it formed me into the person that I am today. And when I look at it, you know, I went and I did my job. I did it honorably. I did what I was supposed to do, you know, and, you know, it wasn't my job to be, um, you know, RC South Commander uh, Abe Abrams. It was to be PFC Curtis Grace and to walk down that path and don't get shot. Um, so, you know, as far as the discussion on whether it was a waste or whether it was worth it for me, it was absolutely worth it. It was a foundational experience in my life. And I hope guys look at it more like that in terms of how it's been good for their personal development as opposed to and kind of realistically place the role in the picture like you know you weren't there to win the war you were a very small piece of of the machine that was there to win the war and it's not your job that it was lost you know but that's that's kind of where we we yeah on i think that. i think that's a really good perspective and um and um you know you're right and you know, one, one thing that I don't know if you guys used to say it at your level, but I, I know I said it at my level and, um, and, and a lot of people share the sentiment. Um, we, we can't want it more than the Afghans. They, they actually, they have to want it more than us. Yes. yes. And there was, yeah. there, was many, there was many a day where I felt like we wanted it more than they did. Mm. That we oh, were yeah. willing, absolutely. Mm. But but again, their their perspective. They live there, right? They're you. We we went home after a year or fifteen months. They they right. had to live there, and they had been up at the grind. And I and I did take that under consideration, right? That they had been at war already. By the time I got there, they'd been at war again, you know, for ten years. So mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. I'm I'm coming in there for a year, and and then you know, going back out, and I might be back a year later. They're they're at it nonstop, and so it's difficult, right? That stamina, right? But I, I just, you know, we couldn't. I felt like there were days when we wanted it more than them, and and that was not going to work. So, but I will really tell you this: so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm really glad to hear your perspective because um, I, I I wouldn't want um, everybody who was there when we were there. I can promise you, they made a difference. Right. I don't care what their duty position was because it did get better. There was progress. Mm-hmm. It was measurable. You could see mm-hmm. it. You could feel it. Right. You could go to Ashura and you knew there was progress. We, we were talking about the right things. Right. Things were getting built. Um, you know, the Taliban did not have freedom of action. Every time they raised their little head and tried to do something, you know, they were going to get whacked or they were going to get dragged in. So it it worked and it and it it was hard hard work, um, but there was a lot of progress and mm-hmm. and I you know I, I'm confident that the people that came after us were were locked in on continuity and so forth. Um, so again, like I said, we we gave we gave them a really good chance and um, mm. and I hope that you know like you said generational. I hope that sometime in the future some. There's a youngster down there who, whose life was touched, who says, "You know what? I'm gonna, we're gonna do something about this." Hope. Huh. Well, Abe, this is where we usually close these uh, these episodes up, and what we always like to do at the very end is to kind of give you, our guest, a chance to to say anything that you want to say that we didn't get to talk about either during the interview 
if you wanted to speak directly to to the soldiers that you've commanded or you wanted to call out a particularly exceptional you know nco or officer in your career this is kind of one of the chance to kind of say whatever you want the floor is yours yeah well um well first off thanks for giving me the opportunity this has uh, been terrific sort of go down memory lane and and um, have an opportunity to talk about um what was going on in ken or Pines Wave District from 2012 to 13. Um, as I just said, but I'm going to say it again. Um, for for those in Bravo 164 who served in Spare One Gar, yeah, your service mattered. It it did matter. It was um, extraordinarily difficult, challenging assignment and tour. Uh, nobody. It, w- it was not designed that way it just happened as we recanted as a result of a number of different things that occurred and um everybody who served in that unit um you know they had they 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 stepped it up and um and they made a difference um that particular place by the way as you, you know is key terrain and controlling key terrain is always essential for success in a military operation and you guys did it and i know it was really difficult and there were some there were some bad bad days and um um, but you should all be enormously proud of your service um i'm i'm certainly proud to say i served with each and every one of you um so that's my first message um look i got i was fortunate i got to be a soldier for 39 years three months five days and um and I say I was fortunate because um, I I got to do what I love to do. I I love being a soldier, and um, you know, not every day was was uh, rainbows and unicorns. Not every day was a great day. I I had my fair share of really crappy, terrible, you know, days, um, but. I'm enormously proud that I had the opportunity to be a soldier and serve my country. And I got to serve with some unbelievable Americans that I otherwise would not have had a chance to meet and serve with and uh, share the sacrifice with. And I have I have so many friends for life um, that 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 my family and I, our lives have been so enriched by everybody that we got a chance to uh, to serve with and to walk with. So um, it was it was fantastic. And um, I've got nothing but the, the fondness of memories. And um, and I'm grateful to have had that opportunity. Not many people get to do it for as long as I did. I was just fortunate. And um, hmm. and I, but I'm 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 retired now and uh, keeping busy in other ways and uh, looking for opportunities to give back. Um, I'm um, one thing I am committed to is one thing I've learned in retirement is, um, you know, who helps veterans most in transition into the civilian world and um, work in a civilian job are other veterans. Yes. And, yep. um, and that is uh, something I take to heart. And so every chance I get, um, I'm helping veterans. Uh, make the transition to help get them connected um, so that they can get on a pathway to whatever they want to do. And, um, and uh, I think that's our, I think that's our responsibility for those that have gone before them 
um, is to help the next generation of vets make that transition. But you can count me in and anything I can do to help um, veterans in any way, small, big, whatever, um, um, I'm available to do it. Don't don't hesitate to reach out to me. And, and I'll, if I can help you, I'll find a way to help you. There's a ton of ways to contact me. You can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, you can contact me on Twitter. That's how we found it. At, <laughs> at, at Dogface Soldier. What else would I be? <laughs> I wouldn't give a bean to be a fancy pants Marine. I'd rather, I'd rather be, be a dog-faced dog soldier, soldier like I am. Fellas, <laughs> well, thanks very much. That, this has been terrific. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you, Abe, uh, sir, General Abrams, for uh, for your time and for uh, just, just, yeah, just for your time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.